So I want you to roll back in time with me just for starters. I just want to start with a couple of uh, stories from my life. Um, imagine me, age 17, young, excitable, not too dissimilar to how I am today. Uh, trust in God. I believe God's got good things for my life. Um, uh, doing well, really, I've got, that, I've got that zip of young confidence about me that verges on arrogance. Have I still got that? <laughs> I don't know. But something happens to me. I had a girlfriend at this time, and out of the blue, she cheated on me. And I'll tell you what, for in my young formative life, in my young years, it's knocked me like no other event in my life. Just a bad thing coming out of the blue that made me, it just, it just hit me with so much pain. And it, it did two things to me, probably more than anything. It knocked my confidence in people and not my confidence in God straight away, my trust, my faith in God. Like, how could somebody who'd said that they cared for me, you know, uh, do that to me? That was horrible. And how could a God who says he loves me let that, let that happen to me? You know, I thought that life was going to be good. It, it rocked my faith. Roll forward to about two years ago. Another story, um, those of you will know, some of them know, uh, that we were called here, me and Becky, quite, quite powerfully. No disrespect to the city and those of you who loved it, but I had no intention of moving to Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool had a bad rep, and I didn't want to go and place my, my life there, but God called us there. And so we decided to follow, and we decided to look, and we got excited about it. And we put our house on the market and we started telling our friends, God's spoken to us, big claim, eh? that he wants us to move to Liverpool. And we were sure things would happen quickly and easily because God had spoken and he'd spoken powerfully. Lo and behold, we see our friends go off to Liverpool and we're looking around and there's no house that we could see or felt that was right for us to move to in, Li in Liverpool initially. Then, like, my wife, who is a doctor who has to get a transfer over here to move us here, doesn't get the transfer. It doesn't happen. We've got to wait another six months until she can apply for the next transfer, and there's no guarantee that she's going to get it. And it... In this moment, I remember exactly the moment I found out, actually. I stopped off my, I was riding my bike over to a retail park called Crown Point in, uh, in Leeds. And um, I expected to hear the great news because God was going to move. He was going to open it up and move us to Liverpool. And Becky said, Matt, it's, it's not happened. They've rejected our move over here. And my inner just sank. God, you've spoken. You've called us. How can this be? I remember actually feeling anger, frustration. And I'm crying out as I rode the rest of the way on my bike to Crown Point. I can't, I can't remember what I was buying. It might have been oven gloves. <laughs> but, they were the, but they were the saddest oven gloves I have ever bought. <laughs> Do you know what? In, in each of these times, what had been affected was my, my heart, my heart for God. I'd been like, they'd been like faith shocks, deep moments of faith shock in my life. They stand out for me. Do you know, and these are fairly minor things compared to some of the faith shocks that other people have. Rejection, betrayal, death, illness. 
What do we do as Christians in times like these? Should we expect them? Should they have affected me like this, caused a wobble in my faith? How can I stand if more things come? Do you know, today it's a bit funny. We're going we're gonna to step out of the mini-series, which we're using to step out of a bigger series, into a mini-mini-series. <laughs> It's not really advisable in church at all, like, because it breaks the flow of things. But there's one reason that I'm going to do this, because I was praying, and we had this two-slot where I had back-to-back slot, and I was just like, okay, we'll, we'll go into the mini-series, we'll do the mini-series, move along. And I, I felt God interrupt me, like, just to my prayer, just quietly, and said, no, Matt, could you, could you please go to Joseph? I've got some stuff that I want to, I want to talk about to the church, and I want to talk about these moments of uh, faith shock, and I want to speak into these moments of faith shock that we we face in our lives and I've got some things that I want to say and sow into the church and so we're going to step out of the mini-series into a mini-series in between the main series of Corinthians that we're going through right now (laughs) I hope that's okay and makes sense so I want to turn today to what will be a very familiar story uh, today, Joseph's life, the, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And over the next two weeks, I want to relook at the course of his life and what happened to him. And I, I hopefully, as we go through, um, it will bring to my life. And I have, I have faith that the Spirit is going to speak to us as we do this. And I feel like the Lord um, prophetically has two works he wants to do in us over the next two weeks. And the first is about healing. And the second is about building. It's about building uh, a fullness of an enduring faith, as well as faith for those breakthrough moments that we are going to see many of in Freedom Church. He wants us to walk a life of faith in him that endures. And I feel like he wants to use the story of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph, to freshly build some of those into our lives. So I'm just going to pray again, if I might, before cracking on, um, just that the Spirit would move and you know, do what he has to do if I've heard correctly here. Would that be all right? Yeah. Spirit of God, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that the living God is active amongst us. And we thank you that the word is the sword of the spirit. It's the tool you use to cut into our hearts, Father God. So when we are reaching out into the world, you are reaching into us changing us, leading us, encouraging us, drawing us to truth, challenging our minds, aligning them with you and your story and the way you see the world. And Spirit of God, I want to pray that you would do that work in us this morning. Would you move amongst us, Lord Jesus, Father God? Would you shape us? Would you lead us? You're our king. You're our leader. Come, Lord Jesus, I pray. So if you want to follow it, the full story of Joseph is quite long. It's between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50. Um, I'm just going to, over the next two weeks, draw some of the main points out of that. And I think it can be legitimately broken down, his life, into five acts. Three of which I want to look at today. Two of which I want to look at a bit more next week. So, Act 1 starts in Genesis 37. And Act 1 opens with a 17-year-old Joseph with 10 of his brothers in the field 
tending to his father's flock. And it continues to follow the next few weeks and months of his nomadic life. And instantly, in Act 1, we find out some stuff about Joseph. We find out that his father Jacob loved him amongst all, above all of his brothers. You see, before Joseph was born, although Jacob already had ten sons from his wife Leah and his servants, he had no son with his most beloved wife, Rachel. Because she had an inability to bear children that had caused much pain and conflict between him and her in a marriage. But in her late life, God heard her prayer and Joseph was born, the Bible tells us, because God intervened and opened up her womb. So when Joseph arrived for Jacob, he was a promise fulfilled, a son to him from his true love, Rachel, the most joyful miracle baby from God in his old age. He was a gift given by God into God's chosen family. He was the favoured child of a favoured people. And famously, we find out, do you know, have, you, have you been to see the Andrew Lloyd Webber gig on this? Anyone? The musical? No? What did he get? He got this Technicolor dream coat, didn't he, as Andrew Lloyd Webber calls it. A sign of his father's favour for the son was that he was given this coat of many colours from his father as an expression of his deep love and favoured for him and his favoured position. Do you know, as well as this deep favour from his father, we find out in Act 1 that God's spirit was with this lad. He had some clear plans for him. And as a young man, God spoke clearly to him about his special place in two clear dreams. Dream one. The first pictured him and his brothers binding sheaves of wheat in a field. And in the dream, his sheaf, his sheaf of wheat stood upright and proud, whilst the others all bowed down to him. Secondly, he had a dream about the night sky where in even more sort of grandiose picturing, all the sun, the moon and the stars bowed down to him. This was a sign from God of his special place that he was going to rule. He was a man blessed, set to rule and reign. Amongst the people of God, the people that God had set to restore the earth. So, in the beginning of Act 1, what we see in his lifeline, which I'm going to draw up here as we go along, is actually a pretty sweet start. His expectations, just like mine as a 17-year-old boy, would have been pretty high for what life was going to look like with God. But alongside these things, we also find in Act 1 that despite his favour, his early life was marked with some incredible lows 
just quickly, his mother died in childbirth in the birth of his final younger brother, Benjamin. So he lived without a mother. And his father's favoured love for him had become the source of huge hatred in his family. Amongst all of his brothers, they had become jealous and envious of his privileged place. And being simply part of the family of God was no longer enough for them. They had become bitter and hateful towards him to the point the Bible says they could not speak peacefully to him. There was no love in their heart for their brother. And we see that in his young life, Joseph didn't actually help this. He was a bit of a grass. He reported on them as they were out in the field whether they were doing right or wrong to his father. And in arrogance, faith, or just simple like stupidity of youthful exuberance, he chose to share his dreams of superiority with his brothers who were already struggling with his place. And of course they couldn't hear God in it. All they heard was this arrogant, special young man and all his furthers. They, they hated him. And act one of Joseph's life closes in devastation for Joseph. Whereas he meets his brothers in a field when they are tending to the flocks again, this time they conspire to kill him. And only his eldest brother Reuben tries to save him. But although he prevents him being beaten to death, he cannot prevent Joseph being stripped of his robe, thrown into a pit without water, and sold to slave traders. This young man of promise in the first act of his life goes from being in this place where all his expectations are for goodness and health and glory to being a commodity. Destiny is taken out of his hands. You know, this is not a happy tale, is it? 17 years old and his brothers did this to him. You know, the worst my brother did to me uh, around age 17 was to do a thing called petrol pumps where he used to lie on either of my arms, pull, his up, pull my arms up, really hurt, and fart in my face as he did it. Like, it was pretty rough. But he never tried to kill me. He never tried to kill me. I, I just want to keep, I let that sink. Having your own family members try to murder you and selling you into slavery because they hate you that much. But hold on a minute. He is clearly a man blessed. He's clearly a man chosen. There's no two ways about that. He's clearly a man called by God. And in the first act of his life, he experiences the absence of his mother, hatred from others because of the love of his father, mockery and rebuke, we're told, when he brings these pictures to his family, even from his father who loves him. The thorns of his own foolishness. And having the entire course of his life rocked by those who should have loved and cared for him. And in the day, you've got to realise this was his entire security network. It's totally taken from him. All his freedom, his status, all his hopes and dreams. Facing future as a slave owned by another. Everything to nothing in an instant. 
he is completely bankrupt. That's act one of this young man's life. And if we see it, bang. Wow. That's some hard stuff. Surely it has to get better for this young man. Act two. The next act, I think, falls into chapter 39, 1 to 20. And it picks up in Egypt now, where Joseph has been taken and sold by slave traders to a rich Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, Potiphar. Rather than free, like I've said, he is now owned And his life is not his own anymore. But the first tone of this part of Joseph's life is much better again. We hear that although God didn't prevent the horrific events that caused him to be sold into slavery, he was still with Joseph. And that this was visible to Potiphar. So he gave everything in his household, this is a rich, powerful Egyptian, to Joseph's care. Joseph became governor of the whole place. He became overseer of the household. And Joseph made a name for himself in Egypt. We're told that he became a successful man, despite being a slave. Surely his life could not sink again. Surely this was the start of the upward flow that he'd always expected with God. But in the midst of all this favour, what we see was that there was a wolf waiting to devour him. As Joseph had grown into his early 20s, we're told he's also grown to be a handsome man. Normally not a problem. But what we find out is that Potiphar, his master, had not married a faithful woman. And as Joseph grows in looks and status, we're told he catches her eye. And repeatedly, this wealthy woman, this powerful lady, tries to seduce Joseph into sleeping with her. Day after day after day, she tempts him to lie in her bed. But Joseph, loving his master and loving God, repeatedly denies her, saying, How could I do this wicked thing to my master and sin against God? He's steadfast in his resistance. He does what God would have him do in this situation. Then the second devastating day comes in Joseph's life. We're told one day when he was alone in the house with only Potiphar's wife, she grabs his robe and demands more forcefully than ever, lie with me. Come be in my bed. But Joseph, again, rather than give in to temptation, runs from the house, leaving his garment in the house, leaving his robe in the house with her. And what is his reward for remaining faithful, for doing the will of God, for looking after his master, further success, thanks? Did his master's wife see the evil in her ways? No. 
Potiphar's wife claimed he attempted to violate her, to rape her, using his garments as proof of his actions. And he is thrown into prison. Act 2 then closes with Joseph worse off than ever. No longer a slave, but a prisoner. No rights or success whatsoever. Why? Because he sought to do what pleased God in the situation. Yet rather than receiving from deliverance from Potiphar's wife, on top of being nearly murdered by his brothers and thrown into slavery, by the time he is, Tom's not here, by pretty much the time he's around Tom's age, we're talking, early 20s here, maybe slightly older, he is also thrown into prison and falsely accused of a sexual assault. How do you think you'd be holding up by this time in your life? In Act 2, he suffers false accusation. People not believing his version of events, not seeing him as trustworthy. His name is entirely ruined. Everything that he has is gone for a second time. He's essentially been labelled untrustworthy. has no freedom. Having thought his life could not get any worse, it did. Multiple knocks he faced. Surely, Act 3 has to be better, yeah? Surely it's got to get better than this. No one feeling depressed by today's preach yet? (laughs) Remember, remember, today is part of two parts. Okay, two parts. So Act 3, he's in prison. And again, at the beginning of Act 3, it's not back up to the heights of his former life by any means. It's a bit like the success he talks about is like, I don't know, being a good supervisor in McDonald's maybe, rather than being CEO of, I don't think of a big company. VW? Not a great example at the moment, but do you know, like, BHS, yes, somewhere huge and successful. (laughs) We're not doing political uh, preaching today, guys. You know, we'll reaffirm, though, in this environment that God was still with Joseph. Still with Joseph. And again, in this environment, away from everyone important in the world's eyes, he prospers. We're told that just like in Potiphar's house, Joseph was given a second in command position in the jail. Everything in the jail, once more, was in his command. And he was trusted by the head jailer to run the prison without any oversight. And what's more in this setting, in this low point in his life, we see some amazing acts of God happen in his life. Here, God uses Joseph's gifts of understanding dreams remarkably. Whilst in jail, two prisoners who were of high position 
in Pharaoh's house are put into disgrace and sent to the, the prison. One was his chief baker and one was the chief cup bearer to Pharaoh, who in particular was like a chief advisor. He didn't just take the cup to Pharaoh's lips. He was in a position of great influence in that place. He would have had his ear on many matters. And one night, each of these men, whilst in jail, has a disturbing dream that they cannot interpret. The cupbearer, the cupbearer dreamt of a vine with three branches that bore ripened grapes. And then he pressed these into a cup. He dreamt how he pressed these into a cup and put it back into Pharaoh's hand. The baker dreamt of three baskets of bread balanced on his head. The uppermost of these baskets had all kinds of baked goods in them for Pharaoh, but birds were eating out of the top and eating the food from the basket. And Joseph, trusting God implicitly for an interpretation, tells them that these three baskets and three vines mean that in three days, Pharaoh was going to pronounce judgment, final judgment on them. But where the cupbearer, lifting the cup to Pharaoh's mouth, meant that he would be restored to his former position of confidant to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land. The birds meant that the baker would be hanged and that the birds would eat the flesh from his bones. Nice. Imagine giving somebody an interpretation to a dream like that. And three days later, when Joseph's interpretations miraculously proved completely accurate, Joseph, knowing the hand of God in this moment, sees his opportunity and tells the cupbearer his painful story of being forcefully removed from his father's household and sold into slavery and being sold into jail despite doing no wrong. And knowing the cupbearer's position and influence with the one power that can acquit him of his crimes, Pharaoh's word, he pleads with the cupbearer, please remember me before Pharaoh. Surely with all of these miraculous things happening around him, surely with the presence of God there with him, God would pull him out of the pit at this point, surely. Right? No. In Act 3 of Joseph's chosen life with God, his life ends with these words. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot him. And Joseph Battery gone. Yeah. Can you click on? Is that right? Maybe not the battery. There we go. And Joseph was forgotten in jail for another two years. Of all the trial that Joseph faced, I feel like this word "forgotten" may may have just been the most painful moment of his life. 
it, you know, it reminds me a little bit as I was thinking about it. Did you, did you read that story of, um, of what happened to that kid in Japan who was left by the roadside? And he was left there in just five minutes. And I, and I think everybody went to this place of what must have been going through his head. I, I reckon the question must have been, is my father coming back for me? Paramount of that little boy's head. And I, and I can't think of any question other than that that would have been going through Joseph's head in this moment. Are you coming back for me, God? Are you coming back for me? There's no violence in this chapter. No big betrayal. But I bet you that was the moment where he almost broke. That's where I want to leave it. You don't often leave stories on down notes, do you? <laughs> it's not done with preachers. We go, we go on to the good bit at the end. And there is a good bit. And we're going to talk a bit about that next week. And I'll pick that story up next week. And make no mistakes about this. Like, I think we can move on from the bad bit too quickly. And Joseph's life, up until the age of about 30, was a tragedy. An absolute tragedy. 13 years here, he faced some incredible hardships and difficulty that make what I have faced look ridiculous. Even though we clearly see that he has a deep relationship with God, has been given a real purpose in God, he receives crippling blow after blow after blow in his life. And yes, like if we know the story well, we know that things change. But there is something I believe that God wants to nail onto us and sow into our foundations about the Christian life through the first 30 years of Joseph's life that I don't want us to move too fast on, which is why I want to rest at this point today. I think it's the reason that, in this, that one of the key reasons in this very first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, a book of foundations, as Mark Driscoll once so helpfully called it, that we're given this story be a foundational story in our lives. What is the reason for this? You click on. Is it just to show us that actually God is a bit mean <laughs> and doesn't look after us? Is that, is that what we're to learn from this? Well, absolutely not. It is instead to dispel a very dangerous myth and prepare us and to give us right expectations of what a life of walking with God looks like. So, if you click on, what it teaches us, and once more please, is that life does not and has never looked like this for Christianity. God never tells us it is going to be plain sailing, always improving, super duper, that's not it. That is a mistake <coughs> this life shows us. And he wants to protect us from this thinking. Joseph's story, as a foundational story, 
protect us from this thinking because we see what a life with God looks like. Instead, it's Joseph's example and many others in the Bible tell us that a Christian life, a life with God, looks like this. It is a life that will have many weathers. The sun will shine sometimes, the rain will come, the storms will come, there will be hardship, there will be difficulty. God wants us to expect. He wants us to understand that those things will come as part of our lives. But that does not remove him from being with us. So God places Joseph's foundational life before us to establish deep in us this reality. And it's so important that we understand this. It's so important that this shapes our thinking. That this is to be our vision of how our life will look at times. Why? If we click on. Why is it so important that we don't make that mistake? I think we find some of the answer in the book of Proverbs, actually, which gives us wisdom on how to live and gives us this explanation. So if you can just click on. Proverbs 37 to 9, a guy called Agar reflects with God on this. Two things I asked of you. Deny them not before me, for I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is neither food that is <coughs> needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and stale and prof- steal and profane the name of my God. Click on Proverbs thirteen twelve says this: Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What are these pointing to? They're they're pointing to the fact that these highs and these lows of life and where our expectations in this last one for life are not met and our hopes don't just affect us externally but can, like they did with me in my initial stories, deeply damage the central link between God and his people. Our faith and our confidence and our heart in him. It's an idea that is reinforced in the book of Hebrews where Paul encourages believers not to let the trials of life cause them to shrink back and be destroyed or to lose their confidence in God. These things can affect our faith, our trust when we face trials of many kinds, when we are not. They're saying, these Proverbs are saying, if you click on, that real life's ups and downs can act like a pickaxe to our faith. Especially where our expectation is that trials will not take place. Where we start with a golden, childlike faith. An enthusiasm that the days of God has set before us will be full of good things. But over time, events, incidents happening could cause our trust in God to shrink, to be hacked away at. Loss, hardship, failure, illness, blow by blow. 
They etch into the purity of our trust in God and his story for us. Our confidence in him and our goodness can shift, sometimes without even being aware of it, until the golden faith that started at the beginning when we met with Jesus, when we knew his security, when we knew his changing power, has slowly but surely ebbed and etched away. Just a shadow of what it was before. Can you click on? And if our belief in God was that he was always going to send us on an upward curve in life, that everything was going to be in smooth sailing, it can be crippling to our faith, heart and our relationship with him. Through these trials and issues and trust, our, our faith and trust and confidence in God can become one of, those, like one of those mansions we see on restoration programs where something that used to be beautiful now looks a little run down and battered. The colours are less vibrant, the mortar a little cracked and crumbling. And sometimes we call this maturity and realism. But what's really happening is that we're not taking God at his word anymore. We don't really believe that God is with us in all area of our lives. And if this has happened to us, things like church attendance, it, it doesn't become about being in a community that trusts God anymore, meeting him with great joy and expectation. It's going through the motions because we think, what's the point? And little by little, these lows Build up a body of belief that God is not trustworthy. Does that make sense to you? If I communicated that, okay. And do you know what? In all honesty, I would say that what I've just tried to communicate there is one of the biggest dangers in the Christian life. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that I've faced in my life. That little by little, I look at these these low points, these hard points, and they become the story that I tell myself about life. And my faith in God slowly moves to being a bit more trusting in myself. And those people that I've seen move away from God in my life, that would be primarily what it's been about. Has that been some other people's experience? Yeah, some nods. And it is this critical danger to our life with God that God wants to protect us from and heal us from by putting foundational stories like Joseph and his 30 year, first 30 years of life into the Bible for. He wanted to prepare us by his grace that life would not always run smoothly. It's a really simple thing. It's a really simple thing. But it's a really important thing that we know that when they hit, it does not mean that God is not with you and that God is not good. He always told you that these things were to be expected in your walk. Why am I, why am I closing? What's, this, is, this is it. That's the point I want to communicate today and I want to run deep. And next week we're going to look at Joseph's response to these trials and what we can learn from these uh, and how Jesus fits into these trials. So if it feels a little incomplete today, that's why. Because it's one of two. 
But I believe that just through this 30 years of life, there's two things that the Spirit wants to heal us from today. One, he wants us to heal us from anywhere we recognize the, the good life model of God in us, where we feel like, actually, maybe that seeped in a little bit, that belief that actually life is always going to be crazy and easy from being with God. And set just in you afresh. Look, there will be highs, there will be lows, but I am with you. But I am with you. And that God, when you're going through highs or going through lows, it never means God has forsaken you. But secondly, and most importantly, I feel like he wants to speak to us about faith shocks that have had a lasting effect in our lives. And he wants to restore the rooms of our mansion house and bring us to faith, restore us to faith in places that have caused us to lose faith in him. Joseph's life, one of the things about it in that first year, 30 years, pretty much covers everything that can cause our faith to become knocked. Just listen to the list, just afresh, that I've got here. He faces injustice. He has been the, on the receiving end of injustice. He has been betrayed. He has been attacked. He has known death in his life. Separation. Unwanted separation. He's known suffering for doing what God wanted. He's known unmet hopes for a time. He's known ruin and he's known prolonged waiting for God to act. And I just want to allow a bit of space for God to come. And I just wanted to ask you just in a time of the Spirit just to reflect today. Reflect on your life. Where have the faith shocks been for you? Where have the things that have taken that, that golden faith? What have they been for you? They'll look different for everyone. And have those, and have those impacted on your trust in God? Just a moment of time between you and God where the Spirit is present. And I believe that the Lord wants to just bring you back to these truths in those moments. Listen, a life with me always has those ups and downs. I am with you and I have not forsaken you. Allow the biblical narrative of Joseph to guide you in that. <coughs> you know, sometimes God doesn't take away 
the trial, if we're in one as well, what he does is he reorientates our view to look at it through biblical eyes again. And he restores us just through that. So I feel this first point of two weeks, like I say, it's a two-week point, but I wanted to land it here. I'm just going to pray. Spirit of God, Lord God, I want to pray for people where they have recognised that actually their faith in you has been rattled by events in life. And Spirit, I want to pray that you just come now and heal. Lord, I want to pray that you build in us a robust faith. Lord Jesus, over these next two weeks, Lord, truly, not just by our efforts of going, oh, I have to believe, but one where your word really sinks into us, Lord Jesus, and aids us to run the race of life well. Spirit of God, we ask in Jesus' name.